We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. With your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to yet another episode of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I am your host, James DiVirgilio, not alongside Alan Williams. Alan became a father on Saturday evening at 1.26 a.m. Oksana Williams entered this great world. Both the father and the wife and Oksana are doing just wonderfully. But unfortunately, Alan cannot be here today to co-host with me. I will be doing this episode entirely solo. That's a first for this podcast, four years strong. I think we're almost 70 episodes total in, and we have some new territory to break. Originally, I tried to get Ahmad Black on the pod today. He's a good buddy of mine from playing football with last last season, last year, but he was working. And so since we get this podcast out to you every single Monday without fail, here I am. So let's saddle up and take a look at what went on last weekend and what was a, a excellent weekend for college football. Of course, before we do that, you know it is time for me to use my favorite word, dono. And thank those that gave gave the show a dono last week. We have several new people I would love to thank. If you, too, like the content on this show, feel free to give us a dono on Patreon. You can find that link in our Facebook page, on our Twitter page, or anywhere else you can find the show. A couple new large donos this week. Bruce Smathers, thank you so much. And Daniel Welsh, a couple new medium donos as well. Chris Glazier, Chris, great to have you on board. And then Ryan McCann. Ryan, I spoke with your sister over the weekend, and she told me that she was most surprised that of all of her brothers that you were the one who joined the podcast. So yeah, I'm airing your dirty laundry right here on the show. And lastly, we have Danny Kent coming in at a small dono. Thanks so much for the support, Danny. And as always, our top supporter still, Alexander Leventhal. He has had that spot from day one. No one can knock him off of it, at least not yet. All right, before we get down to the Vanderbilt game, we will be doing a mailbag episode. We deferred this one week since Alan couldn't do it. So if you have any questions for the upcoming week, the Georgia week, next week, next Monday, about anything Gator-related or otherwise, now is the time you send it to us. You can send it to us on Patreon, on Facebook, or you can tweet us with your question or your thoughts or whatever the case may be. And Alan and I will address that during the Georgia week uh, on next week's episode. Let's jump right into the opening thoughts from this game. Was this the most satisfying win against Vanderbilt? I mean, ask yourself. When you went into the game on Saturday, you probably thought, Vanderbilt, I want to get out of this game with a win. I want to go into the bye week and I want to play Georgia. No matter what really happens, it's probably not going to be immensely satisfying. However, you quickly go down 21-3. to You think we're a fraud. The season is over. You're texting your friends. You're frustrated. And then we go on to have a 34-6 to run, change of momentum, end the game, where you're probably feeling anything like me. You're feeling very, very satisfied 
that we produce this kind of win. It, it's one of the most satisfying Gator wins that I can remember in a very, very long time. Of course, it's been many years since we've had a comeback of that nature, being down 18 points on the road. But just in general, I thought the way the team played in that kind of environment at the 11 a.m. game was rather extraordinary. Uh, there were also some excellent moments in this game that kind of indicated maybe where we're going as a program, and we'll unpack those. And last but not least, uh, my key to the game last week was that we'd have a big play emphasis, and the first half, Vandy certainly got us. Three plays at 20-plus yards right out of the gate, uh, and then we settled in and didn't allow any more. So I had said five or less, I felt good, pretty generous. That actually wound up being the case, and that wound up being just enough for us to get the win. All right, there's plenty of stuff for us to unpack, especially when you broke down the film. Very interesting on film this week. Let's start with the offense. How were we successful? Well, first things first, we started about as poorly as we could have uh, in the midst of starting as well as we could have. So we drive right down the field. We find ourselves in the one-yard line. We throw a slant route. We throw a pick. The whole game sort of changes on that moment. And college football can be like that, where one emotional moment almost changes the entire tenor of the first half. It's exactly what happened, put ourselves in that big hole, came back to finish very strong, got a win. What was the game plan coming into this game? Uh, well, we mentioned last week on the pod that, that on film, it looked like throwing swing passes to our running backs would be an excellent idea, as well as running the ball. That is exactly what we did. This is yet another example of Dan Mullen and the offensive staff being very tactical with their game-to-game -game plan. Uh, and it's always great when you notice something on film the week before. I put it out to you guys on the pod, and then that's exactly what happens. We had not been throwing the ball in swing passes to running back more than a handful of times in a game. I believe we did it at least eight or nine times against Vanderbilt, and the majority of the time it worked very well. Of course, we also ran the ball extremely well. This is our best overall run blocking performance from the offensive line. We did an excellent job with regards to that, and that was absolutely part of the game plan. Um, lastly, it was clear that we wanted to get Tony, Kadarius Tony, the ball more in this game, and we accomplished that. I think he had six or seven touches. Uh, there was a concerted effort to attempt to get him out on the edge. Again, Vanderbilt had been struggling with those kind of plays, and we attempted to manufacture those as much as possible. A recurring theme each week has been how well we've been play calling, and we absolutely play called our way into points yet again in this game. On our opening series, we throw up a pick on a slant. Now, that might look familiar to you if you watch Seattle do that in the Super Bowl, uh, famously, where they did not run Marshawn Lynch. We had just finished running the ball very, very well in the red zone to get to where we were, and you would have expected there to continue with a run. Vanderbilt actually gave us a man look with no safety help, and they sold out entirely to stop the run. So if you feel yourself being very frustrated that we threw the ball there in that sequence, throwing the ball is entirely defensible. A slant route when there's no inside help, unlike what happened in the Super Bowl with Seattle, one-on-one -on -one is a very, very safe football route to throw. I have no problem with the play call. It was the right play call, given the numbers, given what they were doing. That probably leads to a touchdown eight times out of 10. And maybe one time out of 30, do you get the result that we got, where Franks bricks it off of their lineman, goes up in the air and gets a pick. So a frustrating moment, but on film, really the sequence of play calling was solid. I don't have a problem with that play call. We would have been running the ball into a nine-man front that was clearly ready for us to run, and that would have been sort of the old-school football mentality of helmet on a helmet, you know, bash your way into the end zone. I much prefer using the better strategy and better tactic of, of using the numbers as your guide. We did that, so that did not work out for us, but that had consequences play calling in the next red zone series. So the human nature element of the game comes into play here. We get into the red zone. Uh, Vanderbilt basically loads up for the run again, and we spend all three of our inside the 10-yard line plays running the ball into disadvantaged fronts. So Vanderbilt had a plus numbers advantage on us, and we refused to throw the ball in that sequence and wound up with a field goal. So you can see how the seesaw effect of emotion affects even coaches that want to say, let's play with the numbers. Uh, in that moment, we abandon it, and I think ultimately it, it cost us a chance to get a touchdown. Uh, probably very interesting. If you've been listening the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about how often we've been running the ball when we've had a numbers advantage in the box. And so uh, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, one of the best things you can do, especially with the Dan Mullen offense before the snap is count how many people are in the box. It's going to be your down lineman and linebackers sort of within seven yards of the line of scrimmage. Uh, if you can imagine that close to the ball. How many, of, how many of those guys are there and how many do we have in that same spot? And there was a third and seven, a crucial third and seven we converted in this game 
when we had seven versus their five. Now, we have tried this multiple times in the past weeks. Sometimes we've succeeded. Sometimes we failed. We've made it a point on the podcast to bring it up because we expected this to continue as the season went on. We expected us to continue to run the ball when we get these numerical advantages. And the more that we are able to successfully convert these on film, the less teams are likely to do what they've been trying to do, which is load up for the pass in obvious situations. So very, very important, small moment in a game that can get lost. Very important when you're talking about future film study and game planning for our opponents. Um, Furthermore, in play calling, multiple of our touchdowns were actually just play called touchdowns. So when Scarlett scores his touchdown, we run to the right side and essentially a plus one man advantage. We have four guys versus their three, and that's a very, very easy way to steal a touchdown. And that's what Dan Mullen, I think, has done a continually excellent job of is sort of, quote unquote, stealing touchdowns with timely play calling. Uh, Swain's touchdown later in the game was the exact same thing. We get a swing pass out to the left. We get four on three. They have three defenders and we have four guys. It's a walk in touchdown. Uh, you know, you didn't see a whole lot of that under McIlwain or Muschamp. And that's a hallmark, I think, of what Dan Mullen and Urban Meyer both do really, really well with their system is they punish you if you're wrong. Uh, and it's very safe. It's very conservative. And it, it tends to work well, especially against, I think, inferior teams like Vanderbilt. Lacks the speed, lacks the size, tends to want to have to guess whether you're going to be running or passing. I thought we did an excellent job there. Uh, there were plenty of places we struggled. Most notably was with turnovers. We had three turnovers in this game. Uh, Felipe Franks' slant pass, I do not think was actually a bad turnover uh, when all things are said and done. Felipe Franks running the ball and fumbling was a horrible turnover. And we're going to get to Felipe Franks in a moment. We'll break down his gameplay just like we do every single week. And lastly, Pierce's fumble was rather unlucky. Actually, just a really kind of weird way to fumble it. He gets his momentum going one way, uh, is turning, ball kind of comes flying out. That's going to happen. We had been very fortunate with the the turnover situation up until this point in the season. Uh, We're one of the best in the country at turnover margin. This one, everything sort of came falling down on us. So we have to absorb all of these bad things happening on offense in the first half. And yet we're still able to rally, uh, most notably with the moment of the game, which we're going to get to uh, here in a minute when we talk about the, the sort of the hit by Houston, the, the illegitimate kick out of Voshan Joseph, at least it feels illegitimate uh, at that stage of the game, that really turned the entire, I think, momentum of the game around. Uh, we seem to have won that exchange, closed at the end of the first half very strongly, and the offense continued to, to do really, really well for the rest of the game. Now let's take a look at Franks's performance. A question that I continually get each and every week is, is Franks improving? Is he getting better? And this week, Maybe the most interesting thing Franks has put on film because his numbers were actually pretty good. Does that mean that there was an uptick in his production, his performance, and his gameplay? Yes and no. So Franks finishes this game 19 of 29 for 284 yards, two touchdowns, and one interception. And I'm going to give him a pass on that interception. He also, of course, lost that fumble. When you look at him on film... What I want to continue to see in his development is second and third read throws. Now let's start with the good stuff. In this game, he made an excellent second read throw to Morrill Stevens. You might recall the play. It was one of the few plays we threw over the middle on a uh, really a skinny post route where he looked to his right, came off Van Jefferson, finds Morrill Stevens wide open, throws the ball perfectly on time in the exact right spot. A really high-level throw, an excellent read. This is the first time all year that I've seen this situation happen. And that's later in the game. He throws a third read ball to Tyree Cleveland, which is, again, the first time on film I've watched him scan left, one receiver, two receiver, all the way to the right, hit him on a hitch route. Things that could go unnoticed when you're watching live, but those are, that's, that's a marked improvement with regards to that. So in that respect, yes. Secondly, Franks is still Franks. After the excellent throw to Morrill Stevens, he then follows it up with what almost was a pick on what was the correct first read throw to Freddie Swain. But rather than putting touch on it into space, Franks kind of guns it in there. So more or less, the majority of throws in this game, almost all of his yards were still first read throws. I just gave you the only two examples I can see on all of the tape where he actually got past his first read. So is there improvement? I'm going to say no. I think he's actually the exact same guy he's been. Uh, which is which is good enough to win these kind of games, like we talked about. Good enough to beat these kind of opponents, especially when you have Dan Mullen savantly 
using different wrinkles every single week to sort of steal touchdowns, whether it's trick plays or whether it's swing passes to running backs, whatever the case may be, that's working very well. Now, the largest improvement in Felipe Franks' game, in my opinion, has been just how well he's actually throwing the ball to his first reads. He had an excellent throw to Van Jefferson on a slant that went for a touchdown, perfectly timed, well executed, pace of the ball was wonderful, hit him directly in stride. Uh, the swing passes to the running backs have been more or less perfect, right in stride, right to the right spot. They don't have to lose any kind of momentum catching and turning with the ball. So there are things he's doing on his first reads that are improving. And that's probably the most notable thing I've seen. So that's the yes component. The no component is if he gets in a situation where he really truly has to read the field, it's still very slow, tends to be laborious, uh, and it's not perfect. But all in all, I will say at this point of the season that Felipe Franks is at a better spot than I thought he would have been able to get to. His lack of turnovers is extremely impressive given Felipe Franks' history. And you cannot say enough about Dan Mullen because, as I mentioned on film, Felipe Franks does not exhibit any significant characteristics of any kind of vast improvement. Uh, doesn't mean that he can't in the future. I continue to say that. He could. It's just very unlikely. Typically, when you get this far into a quarterback's development, you kind of tend to be what you are. There's two components to quarterbacking. The first is, do you have the arm talent? Do you have the physical tools? And the second is, do you have what is required between the ears? And so far, it doesn't seem like Franks has gotten that point. Uh, typically, if you don't get it by now, as many games as he's played, you won't get it. But last and probably most importantly, the biggest problem Franks has in the Dan Mullen system, aside from even not being able to read second or third guys, because let's face it, a lot of quarterbacks don't get there. We're, we're applying a pretty harsh lens to Franks. That's what we do here on this podcast is kind of try to give you the, the real analytics on quarterbacking. But Franks is a woeful runner. This is nothing new to you, the listener. You've watched every single Gator game. You know this as much as I do, but he is an absolutely subpar runner of the football. And in a Dan Mullen offense where the quarterback tends to be an excellent runner of the football, it's affecting us in a wide variety of ways. Defenses do not respect Frank's running. When Frank's actually does keep the ball, he tends to get about the, the minimum amount of yardage you would get on that kind of play. And he's really not a threat for breaking any kind of big play run, even when those plays are there for the taking. So in the Mullen system, it's safe to say there's a permanent cap on Felipe Franks. Now, this opens up a pretty big discussion on what's going to happen next year and maybe even the year after, and that is a discussion worth having. We will table that for now, but there are a lot of thoughts on what is really going to happen because you can find a narrative where Felipe Franks is going to be Florida's quarterback for the next year or maybe even two, given what is happening and what is going on. So at this point in time, it is in all of our best interest to hope and pray and do whatever it is you'd like to do to wish Felipe Franks an excellent progression through his quarterback learning chart because we will go as he goes especially as the schedule heats up and we play teams like Georgia and others that will continue to push us into more difficult situations all right let's flip sides of the ball and talk about the defense so the defense interesting game especially on film uh, Vanderbilt did have success against the defense you could argue they had a lot of success against the defense but that would be a little bit of a mirage so one they had big plays. Vaughn, who was a good running back, definitely exposed us, hit us multiple times, then was injured, which helped. It was helpful not to have him in there. He's a big part of their offense. Second, teams are now making a weekly habit of running the ball at number seven, Jeremiah Moon. We talked about it last week and the week before that. It's carrying over. If Moon is in the game, teams are directly attacking him and having a lot of success. He wound up playing less and less and less as that game went on. This continues to illustrate a main personnel problem we have on defense is that we, do, we just do not have the linebackers to be able to truly run a 3-4. So we find ourselves, as the game going on, switching to more four down linemen. Lastly, and maybe this is most surprisingly, Vanderbilt did an excellent job of not allowing us to get pressure on the quarterback. They primarily did that by using two tight ends. If you uh, listen to the broadcast or you watch the broadcast on TV, Greg McElroy, who's not my favorite color commentator, made a good piece of commentary in indicating that Vanderbilt was using two tight ends the majority of the game to slow down our pass rush. This worked. The downside to that is you take a capable receiver off the field uh, and you make your team a little bit slower on the edges. And so they didn't have a tremendous amount of passing success, but they did, in fact, keep their quarterback clean. So that's something that you may expect to see other teams attempt in the future, uh, given that Vanderbilt probably slowed us down better than anyone else has. So keep an eye on whether teams are going to employ a more heavy, if you will, package to slow us down. Uh, yet again, just like last week, the defense got better as the game went on. It seems that Grantham really has an excellent handle on adjusting to what teams are doing. 
So how do we get better? Well, first we had less snaps for Moon. We talked about the four down line. We played them frequently for the large majority of the game. We did not run, again, what you consider to be a traditional 3-4, but we employed a fourth down lineman instead. And lastly, and this is probably what really won us the game, is we were excellent on third down. So we started the season really being very poor on third down, and almost every single game we get better and better and better. In this game, we were three. Uh, they were, Vanderbilt was three for 12 on third down, three for 12. So a wonderful showing by the defense uh, in that regard. So where do we struggle? Primarily with personnel, and we've highlighted this almost each and every week. I feel like when I get to this category after watching the film, the answer is primarily personnel. Uh, this defense does not make a lot of mental mistakes. And again, enough cannot be said of Grantham because this defense wasn't vastly experienced. Now, David Reese has had a lot to do with that. It's good to ask yourself if we beat Kentucky with David Reese. I think the answer is probably yes. He's made a huge, huge difference. Uh, but personnel-wise, and I'll highlight one play that kind of indicates where we are as a team, the touchdown pass they scored on third down early in the game uh, to Pickney, their best tight end, was essentially a mismatch from the start. So we have C.C. Jefferson faced up against Pickney on the line. Pickney blocks for one or two steps, then releases to an out route, which is a very easy touchdown. The only reason C.C. Jefferson is even guarding Pickney in that situation is because we do not have a linebacker that we trust that can both hold the edge against a rush attack and guard against a route. So we rolled the dice and hoped they would run it there. They pass it instead. Personnel-wise, we just don't have the linebackers yet to get the kind of matchups we want. In that situation, you would almost always want your linebacker guarding the team's best pass-catching tight end. Just a small example of, of sort of how we're, we're adjusting to life without a full and optimal roster. And then early on, too, uh, we get them pinned down on the one-yard line, and they wind up busting a big run off the left side. We talked about this last week, too, against LSU. Uh, we were in the perfect defensive call there. That probably should have been a gain of a yard. David Reese misses, but most importantly, Brad Stewart takes a bad angle, hits the wrong gap, trips and falls, and what's going to be a one-yard play turns into a 45-yard play. Uh, and that's something that, like we said, you'll get once or twice against us, but you will not get the entire game. And that happened again in this game, which is wonderful. Uh, Juwan Taylor personally struggled, although he tends to be getting better and better at coming downhill and making reads, but he dropped two very simple picks, two interceptions that I'm sure he'd love to have back. Keep an eye on him as time goes on. He is getting better and faster at reading when to come downhill. So it's excellent that we had a chance to get those interceptions at the same point in time. Uh, you have to make those picks. If you imagine you're in a big game, maybe against Georgia in this upcoming, after the bye week, upcoming showdown, uh, you're going to need to take a pick when one comes your way. You cannot afford to continue to give really good team second chances. Keep an eye there. And I think Voshan Joseph may have had one of the most unlucky games ever. So the announcers jumped all over him for DDTing one of Vanderbilt's players, but it was pretty clear to me that Voshan Joseph was holding onto the ball. The progression whistle had just stopped. Uh, one of our defensive tackles is sort of pushing and lifting up uh, the guy, and it just looks like by happenstance that Voshan sort of DDTs him, which is not actually the case at all. So he gets a bogus unsportsmanlike conduct penalty there as an innocent bystander. And then, as Jason Landry uh, sent to me on Facebook late last night, there's a photo of Voshan Joseph on the sideline during the brouhaha. And in that moment, Voshan is maybe one of the only players that isn't actually on the field. But thanks to what is now maybe the most ridiculous rule I was unaware of, the entire team gets hit with an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, so he gets his second and he's out of the game. Now ask yourself this question, what if the bench is cleared again later in that game? Do both teams lose all of their players? And what happens then? I don't know. Very odd. So Voshan, really, really unfortunate day for him. Let's switch to special teams now and talk about that play that we just mentioned. So first, you have Houston who comes down and, and, and like, a, like a battering ram, really like old school football, uh, knocks out Vanderbilt's player. Now, this is targeting under the rule. However, intent-wise, I don't think James Houston was attempting to actually hit him with his helmet. He was leading with the shoulder. Helmets make contact. Therefore, you're going out. Was the block necessary? Definitely not. Was it old school football awesome? Definitely. Uh, so tempers flare. Derek Mason is the first to make a, com a comment. Grantham is not one to back down. Grantham makes a comment. And then Dan Mullen has maybe what I think is his finest moment as a Gator football coach. So Dan Mullen, known as sort of a very nice, articulate guy, uh, kind of loses his mind. And I don't know about you, but I felt great about this moment. This is maybe the highest I've ever been on Dan Mullen is in this moment when Derek Mason is on his sideline and there's a, a verbal altercation going on between two coaches. And as opposed to Dan Mullen kind of just sitting there and maybe letting it pass, Dan Mullen gets as heated as he could get. 
People are restraining him. He's yelling back. He's, his visor's coming off sideways. To me, that's the moment you want to see your head coach have, especially a guy that kind of goes counter that reputation. I don't think it was a coincidence that the players from that moment on played almost almost lights out football. I mean, Dan went to bat for his coach, for his players, for the situation. Uh, he felt like there was an injustice there. He did not feel like it was dirty. And I really respect the way that he handled that as well as the halftime interview. And really, the post game was incredible. I mean, he's obviously friends with Derek Mason, gives him a nice big hug, has a nice two-minute meeting with him. Both guys have nice things to say about each other afterwards. Very classy moment and a very heated moment there. And I think that is a, a really, really nice situation for us coming off of McIlwain, who is the total opposite of that. Having a guy who loves being at Florida, who handles it well, who can match the intensity in a road game to get his team up and going, uh, really excellent work by him in that moment. And if you're anything like me, I think Dan Mullen has won you over more than maybe you even thought possible with his own personality with moments like those. He's, he tends to be just a heck of a lot more personable than his reputation had given him or what I ever witnessed in Mississippi State. So Dan, good for you. Really enjoying that. Special teams-wise, McPherson continues to be maybe the best kicker in all of college football. Every time they tell me he missed one, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit frustrating because in my opinion, he's 100%, and we still have this weird field goal that could have been pretty important against Kentucky that winds up getting missed that I don't think should have been missed. Uh, life goes on, I suppose, but McPherson has been absolutely incredible. I mean, the guy looks like the best of an NFL kicker right now. Uh, he's, he's a weapon, and that's really helpful. Uh, Tony, as a kick returner, we've mentioned this before. If Alan were here right now, I know he'd be saying this. So, Alan, when you hear this, uh, I, know you, I know you're smiling. I think we need to remove Kadarius Tony as a kick returner. You may only return one or two kicks a game, but to me, Tony would be a much better punt returner than a kick returner. You want your kick returner to be a straight line fast guy who makes one move while not slowing down. Tony's way more of an east-west juke guy, and that was indicative of him taking that that kick back, which is really a poor, poor choice, poor decision by him, and then compounding it by trying to turn around and run across the field. So not quite sure about that one. But most importantly, special teams is going to be remembered in this game for a very Urban Meyer-like fake punt at a very crucial time in the game. We're down 21-13, to 13, our drive stalls out, and Tommy Townsend does his best Devin Hester impression and takes off. Who knew Tommy had those kind of wheels? Big 20-yard play, momentum on our side, we wind up scoring a touchdown after that, and, and that was probably the other play that changed the game. Uh, you punt there. Sure, there's plenty of game left. You can still win it. But that really was a very aggressive play call, but a very calculated play call. If you go back on film, each time we had punted, Vanderbilt had run punt safe. And not only they run punt safe, but they'd all turn their backs. So excellent piece of coaching to have the confidence on film that if they line up again, like they're going to run punt safe and they're all going to turn their backs, then all we need to do here is have Tommy look like he's going to punt and just take off. Love the call. Love the situational awareness. It's a game changer. So not only is Dan Mullen affecting the game with his play calls on the offensive side of the ball, he's affecting it with special teams. And there's a reason why this team has as many wins as it does, because it does not have a large margin for error. We are seeing a very well-managed game, game by game. Which When you're well-dressed, people say, Nice suit. When you're best-dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separate, sport coats, and dress pants from collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at Everyday Savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's a marked difference from what we've seen under previous regimes. All right, let's go to coaching corner. This is one of my favorite segments. And uh, I'm going to let you know at this point in time that hopefully you're not distracted or tired of listening to me monologue because it feels very weird to just sort of go on and on and on and uh, not have an interrupter or someone to ask a question to or a different voice. Hopefully, though, this is working out. Uh, again, if it's not, hit me up with feedback and tell me how I could do this better if for some reason Alan's second child comes in the near future and I need to be soloing it yet again. Uh, but coaching corner, 
lots of stuff to unpack in this game. Let's start with going forward on fourth down. So A, did I like us going forward on fourth down? Yeah, I thought every situation we went for it was a good one to go for it. B, did I like the play call? Not really. I have to continue to question why we're loading up the old Tim Tebow, uh, no receiver play with with P Ryan as the running back. If we're going to go with a smaller guy who's not really going to run you over anyway, why not go Tony there? Seems like the better move. I've rarely seen Tony get stopped for less than two or three or four yards anytime he runs a direct snap play. P Ryan got the job done, but it was very close on two separate occasions. Very, very close. So something to watch for the future. But I really like where we went forward on fourth down in this game. I thought that was excellent understanding of what we needed to do. A high percentage risk. Liked it a lot. Converted all of them. So very solid there. Something I did not agree with. If you if you may recall, there was a penalty we got on Vanderbilt, and it would have been second and 18 in their own half. And we opted instead to have them take a third and eight. Now, they dropped a dig route over the middle that would have given them the first down, so we dodged a bullet. But not really sure why we declined a 10-yard penalty that would have made it second and 18 in favor of having them take a third and eight. That's curious. I think in reality, kind of indefensible. So I'm not sure what happened there. I'm sure the staff will be talking about that one this week. Uh, But either way, in my opinion, not a good coaching decision there. And I got a question on Twitter that we have answered before. I've answered exhaustively, actually, in the offseason. So if you're new to the show, it's a good time to look at this now. And the question is, why aren't we taking more shots downfield? So as we look at coaching corner, as a coach, why aren't we taking more shots downfield? We clearly have receivers capable of beating their men. And we've been saying that all year long on this podcast. This all goes back to Mullen's offensive strategy. And that's one of the reasons why I continue to to believe that Mullen is a high floor. He's going to win a lot of games every single year, but low ceiling kind of guy, low ceiling kind of guy. So Mullen's offensive philosophy is to generate three to four yards per play and to attempt to throw the ball down the field or to get what you consider to be three to four explosive plays a game. So three to four plays of 20 plus yards a game. That is extremely conservative. For a large majority of that game, Vanderbilt did what LSU did, and they were playing our our receivers press man. Only twice, only twice did we throw the ball downfield. Only twice. Um, There's plenty of opportunities there to run those go routes, to make those things happen. Now, you could say to yourself, wait a minute, what about the offensive line? The offensive line absolutely struggled pass blocking in this Vanderbilt game. Uh, They did not do well as well as they did run blocking. They did a very poor job pass blocking. You can make an argument that that's one reason why we don't want to throw down field. However, that argument is null and void because when teams are playing, you press man, especially with one safety in the middle of the field, you are not going to take a five-step or seven-step drop, which takes a lot of time to make that pass. You are taking the ball in shotgun. You are setting your feet downfield and you are throwing the ball within generally two seconds. So no matter what pass rush they are bringing to you, you are able to take a vertical shot. Teams are daring us to do so. So far, we are not really doing it and it's not really punishing us. But obviously, keep an eye on that again as we move through our schedule and the games become more high leverage and more important. Teams are definitely daring us to take shots. And you imagine with a guy like Felipe Franks with the arm that he has and with the receivers that we have, that we'd be taking more of those shots per game. But do not expect to see that be the case. Because again, Dan Mullen's philosophy is consistent, conservative, three to four yards of play. Now, you cannot argue with the results this season. You cannot argue with it. He's squeezing water from a rock. The fact that we are scoring points the way that we are has been fantastic. Do I think, especially using game theory, that you could increase your expected points per game by throwing the ball down the field more? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that will continue to be a recurring point of frustration for me as we move along with the Dan Mullen system. People can change. Maybe one day this will be different. But for Dan Mullen's career, that's how the philosophy goes, and he sticks very, very much to that. So keep an eye on it, but do not expect us to be throwing the ball downfield anytime soon or maybe even ever under Dan Mullen. It's just not part of the recipe. All right, a couple more items here on the coaching corner. We let the clock run down under one minute. We had a third down and six in our own in our own half at the 35-yard line before we had the huge P. Ryan play on the screen pass. Uh, By the way, screen pass is not typically a staple of Dan Mullen's offense. Another excellent play call and an excellent moment here in the coaching corner decision. 
I don't mind letting the clock run down there. Uh, if you if you have to if you get stopped on that play, Vanderbilt has two timeouts left. They can call a timeout. They can try to block a punt, try to do something crazy, try to return something. So no problem there with that kind of situation. Down twenty-one to ten, stealing it. You almost wind up getting a touchdown on a P Ryan with a screen call. Love the screen call in that situation, especially knowing Vanderbilt's going to back up. So really good understanding of the situation there. Uh, the fake punt, of course, we mentioned earlier, was an excellent coaching decision at the right time. Wonderful way on the road to steal momentum. Something curious to me as well is not going for two. So we had two separate occasions to go for two, 21 to 19 and 26 to 21. In my opinion, both of those situations, especially 21-19, would have merited itself to go for two. Now I understand the reasons why, and let's walk through them. So you might say to yourself, well, if you go for two at 21 to 19 and you do not get it, then you are down two points. And if they score a touchdown, then you are down nine points. So you are effectively down two scores. This, to me, is the best argument against not going for two. I think it's really important in the game of football to keep yourself within one score at all times, to keep yourself within one score at all times. However, there's a lot of football left to be played at that stage of the game, and there is something psychological, I believe, about getting the tie and something not psychologically depressing about not getting the two. So I feel like you can get a nice boost by tying, and if you don't get it, it's not really a big deal. Same point in time mathematically, you guarantee to keep yourself within one score, which is more or less a good strategy. 26-21, however, is a little bit more confusing to me. So why wouldn't you go for it here? Because you're going to go up 27 to 21, which puts you up two field goals. There's 12 minutes left in the game, uh, and you're being pretty conservative, I think, to assume that two field goals is all that's going to be scored, and therefore you're tying. I think you're much more likely to give up a touchdown and then actually be down in the game. To me, this is a clear case where you should go for two to make it 28-21. So if you absorb a touchdown, you are tied. And if you do not get it, you're still down a field goal anyway, and a field goal will outright win the game for you. So 21-19, less curious. 26-21, very curious. I think in that case, you definitely go for two. It worked out for us in this game. But uh, again, it's fun to kind of unpack the reasons. Sometimes they're not as obvious as you may think. That 21-19 one is a hallmark of one where the so-called chart, the two-point chart that was created like 30 years ago, definitely tells you not to go for it. I tend to be the opposite. I think there's momentum play there in the right kind of game where it makes sense. A couple other coaching decisions here before we close this segment out. Obviously, we mentioned finding ways to get Tony the ball, and we are doing that. Expect that to continue on as each game goes on. And then lastly, a really excellent thing happened near the end of this game. So we're up a touchdown. There's three minutes left. We're driving with the football. It's third down and four, and the play clock is running precariously low. Felipe Franks tries to come back at the snap-off, does not. However, Dan Mullen, aware of the situation, calls a timeout. We then go on to call a really good running play against a Vanderbilt defense we expect to get in that situation, so good film study ahead of time. Convert the first down, run an additional two minutes off the clock before getting a field goal that puts the game away. It's little things like that that make a massive, massive difference. It's the, it's the devil in the details. It's the mastery of the game. It's being aware of what's going on situationally, protecting your quarterback from making a bad decision. So wonderful job there, again, by Dan Mullen and the staff. This might be their finest game, I think, with managing coaching decisions, especially because so many adverse things were thrown at them. So to conclude the thoughts that we've come so far with this season from the season preview from where we are with Dan Mullen right now, in my opinion, Dan Mullen is doing exactly what I thought he would do, which is master the details of coaching. And I want to keep reiterating this because I get this conversation a lot. I do not think that Dan Mullen is not a good football coach. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Scott Frost right now. He's winless. What do you do with him? Are we happy we dodged that bullet? A lot of talk about Chip Kelly. Look at him right now. He just got his first win. Uh, it's too early to compare those guys. You got to give them three years. You got to see what happens. There's been no question that Dan Mullen's floor is extremely high. There was no question his floor was higher than both of those guys' floor, in my opinion, coming into it. We said as much on the show. The question that will remain with Dan Mullen is, can he recruit top five talent, and can he beat elite teams? Those two questions are the ones that remain to be seen. This has been excellent. Don't let me take anything away from Dan Mullen. I am as happy as you are of where we are right now in this stage of the season. This is absolutely great. Ranked number 11. We matter. We're relevant. We can win the SEC. I am overjoyed about that. But I want to make sure we're clear. This is not surprising to me. I thought Dan Mullen would really maximize uh, what he had in front of him. What is surprising to me is how well we've been able to execute each and every week uh, with an offense that has a very average quarterback, putting it very friendly, at the helm. And that's been masterful by Dan Mullen. Absolutely masterful. 
So revising the expectations yet again. This question has been a recurring thing in this spot. Does this win make me revise my expectations? It does. And I'm going to tell you why. It's the Georgia game, right? We're going to talk about this Georgia game in a second. But Georgia got pummeled by LSU. All of a sudden, that's a game we can win. And I have been saying on Twitter, anywhere anyone wants to listen, that Georgia's going to crush us. Vegas is going to put them as a 16-point favorite. That's not going to be a game. And by all indications, it looked that way until Georgia got humbled and abused by an LSU team that we played straight up with, that on film we were absolutely equal to. Uh, And that's interesting. That creates a very interesting narrative. Look at the rest of our games. If we're able to beat Georgia, who are we not able to beat? What happens then? Okay, so we get to Alabama. We're going to lose to Alabama. Fine. But what kind of season is that? That's an incredible season. That's, that's beyond the expectation that neither Alan nor I had for this program. And it's quite the difference from what happened with Kentucky, which ties the bow on this. After the Kentucky loss, we got on the podcast and we asked ourselves the question, do we feel like this season is going in the wrong direction? And what was universally stated emphatically was that Dan Mullen will make this team better week to week. But as Gator fans... We can all be forgiven for forgetting what it looks like for a team to actually improve because it's been so long since we've seen that. And I mean, almost eight, nine years since we've seen that, right? Nine, 10, maybe now what it is. But we see it this season. This team is getting better every single week, better and better and better and better and better. And that's why we're winning games, Uh, winning close games. We're winning games in the less to be down 21 to three on the road is no small feat. Vanderbilt, although not a great team, is not a bad team. That's a fantastic comeback win on the road. This Vanderbilt win, one of the most satisfying wins I've watched as a Florida fan in recent memory because it was so out of character for what we have seen. Hopefully you feel the same way. It's as confident as I've felt about a coach maximizing his roster in a very, very long time. A couple of bright spots for the national game recaps. Uh, Of course, the Michael P. Ryan, phenomenal game, his best game as a Gator. O-line run blocking was absolutely fantastic. Really, really carried the day for us. And then Chauncey Gardner, yet again, shows up in the spot. He's just been absolutely perfect. Go back and watch the film on Chauncey Gardner and try to find a single thing that guy does. It's not great. Almost every single game, he's playing near-perfect nickel cornerback football. It's been a big, big difference maker for us. Team slot receivers basically don't even catch the ball. So big, big up to Chauncey. We can ill afford to lose him. Let's hope he continues to stay healthy. All right, national game recaps. This was quite the week to be a team ranked in the top 10. Before we look at them, let's look at a really, really interesting and close game between Texas A&M and USC. A&M goes on to win 26-23 after having a very, very big lead in this game. They hang on, they survive. Jimbo Fisher, much like Dan Mullen, is continuing to get the most out of this A&M team. Ask yourself how many wins A&M would have if someone was still there. Probably half. I think is the correct answer there. So coaches make a huge difference. Well, Muschamp, meanwhile, continues to just absolutely underwhelm. Uh, I got got an email from a South Carolina fan who listens to the podcast as well. And uh, he just talked about how is the writing on the wall? Is is Muschamp going to get any better? And I think the answer answer to that question is no. I think like we mentioned, there's a three-year test. Muschamp was what he was. Any improvements will get her moderate. There's not really a great case study for somebody figuring it out at a second stop after they've already been a big one. And unfortunately for South Carolina, this is supposed to be a much better year for them than it looks like it's going to be. Good news for us. Although they're feisty, they're certainly beatable. Michigan State goes to Penn State, wins an absolute thriller, 21-17. Penn State and James Franklin reeling. Very difficult season for them. Back-to-back brutal losses. First to Ohio State, not a Michigan State, to their arch rivals. Uh, They are definitely licking their wounds, but it does set up a wonderful Michigan State-Michigan matchup this weekend. UCF survives, survives a very close win against a very good Memphis team. The weather really slowed that game down. I don't know if this is enough to derail UCF from the playoff, but it feels like it. It feels like it. I'm not sure a one-point win on the road is going to be able to get them in over a one-loss power team with a much harder schedule. Keep an eye on that one. Missouri was game with Bama for a while, and then Bama took them out 39-10. to uh, Either way, I think Missouri continues to prove that they are, in fact, a, a feisty football team. I think that will be one of the toughest games we play especially matchup-wise. West Virginia, my boy Will Greer, the saddest result for me of the weekend, just absolutely gets hammered by Iowa State. Will Greer's stat line was he was 11 for 15. 100 yards, one touchdown, one pick. West Virginia only ran like 40 plays in this game. They barely had the football. They almost always went three and out. Really dominating performance by Iowa State. And, and a lot of question marks for a West Virginia team that was playing very, very good football. The offense let them down. One touchdown scored offensively in this game. 
So surprising result there. And Ames continues to be a very, very hard place to win. Wisconsin gets drubbed by Michigan. I think Michigan is on the upswing. We talked about them before the season. Uh, they have a lot of returning talent. This should be the year Harbaugh is good. This week, this upcoming will define their season. Wisconsin, a trendy pick to go undefeated before the season began, is doing anything but. Colorado, their first real test against USC. Close game. Fought very, very closely for a long time. Goes down 31-20. USC's not great. I think this proves exactly what we thought about Colorado. A team that had gotten some nice wins, but was not particularly going anywhere fast this season. Georgia LSU. Georgia 16, LSU 36. A dominating performance by LSU. This game was never close. Never close. LSU dominated from start to finish. This raises a tremendous amount of questions about the Florida-Georgia game. Before Saturday, I was in the absolute opinion that Georgia was going to wax us by at least 17 points. They have more talent than we do. They're better up front than we are. Uh, they're not gonna, we're not going to be able to really limit uh, what they're doing on offense as much as they'll be able to limit us. But LSU proved a much different blueprint. At this point in time, I've said it during the LSU game. I'll say it again. LSU and Florida are near identical teams. Joe Burrow is definitely better than Felipe Franks. There's no doubt about that. But the differences are small with regards to how these teams operate. So if LSU can shut down Georgia, so can we. So can we. Very interesting matchup looming. I cannot wait to tell you guys about the film study, uh, which we'll hold off until next Monday. But if you're excited about beating Georgia, I'm going to let you say, yeah, you can, you can be excited. I'm not going to stop you. I know I tend to be people's realistic or pessimistic filter sometimes in this show. Let your minds wander. Let them run. I think this game with Georgia could be very, very competitive. Washington on the road against Oregon loses an absolute heartbreaker. Oregon, I think, continues to be the best team in the Pac-12. We've mentioned that. I think they have, I think they have the front door now, uh, not only to winning the Pac-12, potentially sneaking their way into the BCS championship game. So great job by Mario Cristobal there. And then Miami, very disappointing season in Miami. Virginia beats them 16-13. Mark Richt, I'm sure, is having questions asked about his coaching ability. It's only year two, only year two, but two losses already for Miami. Uh, LSU, of course, looks good, which helps them. But regardless, bad loss for Miami there. SEC roundup, Tennessee beats Auburn. Chris Musgrove, co-host of the show a couple of weeks ago, I can assure you is an utter meltdown. What do you do with Gus Malzahn if you are Auburn? And if you're Tennessee, are you getting better? Yeah. If you watch the game, there's no doubt Tennessee's improving week to week. They're a much better football team. So the, the jury's out on Pruitt. It's still too early to find out what's going on. But I'll tell you one thing. He's a much better coach than what they've had in the past eight, nine years. I have not seen a Tennessee team improve week to week since maybe never, maybe since Phil Fulmer, early 2000s. It's been a long time. You can start naming all their coaches, Derek Dooley, Lane Kiffin, um, you know, go through, go through all of them. There's, there was really no week to week improvement. They'd kind of be the same team, but this team is better. This team is better, better on offense, better on defense. Auburn is an absolute dumpster fire right now. A lot of questions need to be asked in Auburn. The team is way too talented to be doing what they're doing. Ole Miss moves to 5-2 and two with Matt Luke, a guy that I like and Allen disrespects <laughs> over Arkansas, the worst team in the SEC, 37-33. Uh, I think what Ole Miss is doing is exemplary. They're 5-2 they're and two in the SEC. They might finish the year with seven wins, 7-5 seven and five on probation. I think if you're an Ole Miss fan, you got to be happy about that. All right, coming down the pipeline here at the end of the show, we do not have an opponent this week. So to prepare you for the bye week, I'm going to tell you which games are coming up for this weekend and which you may want to tune into. Michigan takes on Michigan State. Michigan's a seven-point favorite in this game. I think it's easy to think that Michigan will win this game by more the way they're playing, but Jim Harbaugh has his demons against Michigan State. This will be one I'm definitely tuning into. Oklahoma, minus seven and a half against TCU. I like Oklahoma in this game. I think they have to win this game to get themselves back into relevancy. TCU's struggling this season. Alabama on the road against Tennessee. Tennessee, 29 and a half point underdogs. 29 and a half point underdogs. By all accounts, this feels like a game that Bama is going to just obliterate Tennessee by. It just seems like that's going to be the message Nick Saban is going to send his horn protege. I don't know if the Auburn game gives me pause because I feel like any result against Auburn throws it out. I'm going to take Alabama here, covering that spread. NC State versus Clemson. Clemson favored by 16 and a half, and both of these teams are undefeated. 16 and a half. I'm going to take NC State in the points on this one. 
Mississippi State, this is the game I'm, I'm maybe most looking forward to watching. One, because I love Joe Moorhead, and two, because I'm very curious to see how this Ed Orgeron LSU team, which appears by all accounts to be well-coached. We mentioned it after our game. This seems to be a well-coached football team. is favored by only 6.5 at home in what is really a massive game. If Mississippi State can win this game, you can imagine Joe Moorhead being the, the bell of the ball right now. And if they lose close, I think the fans feel good. Uh, by all accounts, Mississippi State should match up well with LSU. The recurring problem for Mississippi State is Nick Fitzgerald cannot throw. LSU knows he cannot throw. And as we talked about on our podcast, they will not allow him to have a plus numbers advantage in the box. So expect Mississippi State to have a hard time moving the ball. I'd be very curious to see what Joe Morton's drawn up. Last game of the week that's, that's quite curious, Oregon, who I just said I think is the best team in the Pac-12, goes on the road to Washington State, where Washington State is actually favored by one point. So tune into that one. That should be good theater in the late night slot. I like Oregon to win that game. I think Oregon is ascendant, and I expect them to continue to do very well. Uh, I look forward to seeing what's going on there. All right, that's going to conclude my first ever solo podcast. I can tell you that I feel simultaneously relieved and also like I have just spent every word that exists in my brain uh, for a long time. At any rate, I hope you enjoyed the pod today. It might have been a bit different to listen to this soliloquy. I do not expect that to continue. Alan should be back in the saddle next week. So if you were thinking, oh, man, I definitely don't want to listen to James rattle on for their 48 minutes at some point in time, hopefully you'll never have to again. And if you loved it, hey, let me know. Hey, man, I love listening to you rattle on 48 minutes. You did your best gym room. Great. Appreciate that, too. Uh, as always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the content, if you enjoy the show, please head to Facebook. Give us a like. Head to Twitter. Hit us up. Follow us. Or head to Patreon, become a patron. We love the donos. Uh, we'll give you a shout out on the show, give you some love. Thank you guys so much. We love producing this show in spite of babies and wives and marriages and traveling and everything else. We keep it coming. We'll be back here next week for what is a huge Florida Georgia showdown. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. At Pathways Financial Credit Union, we know things come up that might require extra family funds. You could use the equity in your home to help pay for almost anything, from home improvements to a family vacation. Our home equity line of credit has rates and payments much lower than a traditional loan or credit card. Find out why Pathways is the fastest-growing credit union in Ohio over the last 10 years. Visit one of our convenient locations or check us out at Pathways. Offer of credit is subject to credit approval. Pathways is an equal opportunity lender and is federally insured by the NCUA. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.